Working Cows Podcast, episode 159. Welcome to the podcast that gives producers a platform to discuss and share paradigm-challenging practices. Practices that have increased the effectiveness of their operation and the joy that their families have received from this lifestyle. Howdy, everybody. It's Clay Connery, host of the Working Cows podcast, powered by the Global Ag Network. And y'all, <laughs> I just got to tell you, I have the greatest audience in the history of podcast audiences, I'm pretty sure. So uh, really thankful for everybody who's uh, supported the show throughout all these years, coming up on three years of doing this podcast. Um, most recently, I received uh, one of the most desired pieces of podcast equipment uh, of the last couple of years, the Roadcaster Pro, a very generous listener, went out to my Amazon wish list and bought that there. So, thank you guys so much. Uh, really, really cool Patreon supporters and all that. Uh, Patreon has just uh, released the opportunity to support yearly. So, if you are interested in supporting the Working Cows podcast, you can do that uh, one year at a time and uh, sign up there. So, if that works better for you, uh, go ahead and and do that. Patreon.com slash working cows. Um, working cows.net slash support is where you can find all that. Uh, enough of that. Uh, we're going to talk today to Nicole Masters about what are what are weeds saying to us? How do we hear what they're saying? Uh, how do we understand what they're communicating? Um, yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> all the the cage stage keyboard warriors in the in the regenerative agriculture group will tell you they're not weeds. If there's if they're green and growing and something will eat them, they're not weeds. I get that. But how do we understand what they're telling us about what's going on beneath the surface? And really excited to talk to Nicole Masters about that today. Nicole, thanks for joining me today on the Working Cows podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Clay. It's always fun to talk with you. I was uh, working on a project and listening to a podcast, as I do, and I was listening to Charlie Arnott's uh, Regenerative Journey podcast, and he was interviewing Charlie Massey, and I don't remember what sparked the thought, but I was thinking about um, what do we do with uh, weeds, I guess, as we like to say in in regenerative agriculture, that would be in quotations, but uh, I think if yeah. it's green and growing, it's an opportunity for something to eat it. If, we're, if we'll find the right animal or the right stock density, they'll probably at least experiment with it. So, um, mm. First of all, I guess that that's kind of what I would like to start off with is is uh, maybe reorienting our, our perspective around some of the the species that we refer to as weeds, and then and then we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a good thing to define from the start because I mean, really, for me, weed is just an easy word to to use. But what what I think of as weeds is. I mean, all plants can be weeds in any setting. It is the, what are they trying to tell me? What are the indicators? What is it? Um, you know, you'll see certain types of trees and certain types of soil types, or you'll see certain species maybe by a stream. And it's like, what are the conditions that set the signal for, for germination for these different species? And so I think if we start to um, reframe how we look at what we see growing and make it a, a process of inquiry in terms of, hmm, this is interesting. I'm seeing more of these types of species and maybe it's this type of grass or maybe it's um, these type of broadleaf um, 
spiky things that maybe you don't want so much that the livestock aren't eating, but starting that inquiry is is what regenerative agriculture is all about. And some of the things uh, that they, they might be telling us are the way the soil is balanced. Is that right? I mean, that, that some of the, if we've got this kind of plant growing, it, it might be an indication of higher fungal levels. And if we've got this kind of plant growing, it's an indication of more bacteria. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So I, I think of it in terms of um, six different um, signals and, and reasons for why species might germinate. So First of all, if we have bare ground, so we're going to have those bare ground colonizers that very quickly get in. Or it could be that we have low organic matter, and that's not anybody who's listening to this podcast. Um, it might be to open up compacted soils. It might be in response to um, minerals, mineral availability or imbalances. It might be a microbial imbalance. And it could lastly be a safety valve for toxins. And uh, for me, that's been some of the most interesting weeds that I'm coming across um, are these safety valve valve ones? Hmm. Interesting, and hmm. uh, yeah, like you said, the the bare ground obvi- or the low organic matter, the bare ground maybe isn't an issue. Obviously, it's it's always our neighbor's place, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not us, not us. <laughs> um, but so the the six signals. Um, could you run through those again? So um, bare ground. It could be um, low organic matter. It could be compacted soils. And actually, compacted soils tie into all of those other things. So we have compacted soils because of, you know, maybe it's bare ground. And um, so the fourth one would be mineral imbalances. The fifth one's microbial imbalances. And the last one is the safety valve for toxins. Um, so that's, that's in my book. I've got a whole chapter on weeds so people can look that up. But so it's starting to ask those questions. So... Um, you know, some of these weeds are what we call the dynamic accumulators, which are your mineral imbalanced ones. And that's where we will actually take like leaf tissue tests. So send them off to a laboratory and see uh, what is that plant very high in. And often you'll find if you sample a grass next to it, the grass might be deficient in it. It might be molybdenum. It might be boron. Um, and so those are the ones that are telling us that um, it's a mineral imbalance. Sometimes we'll test a plant and we don't really see that. And then when we look at the microbial signature, it's very much a microbial indicator as opposed to a, a mineral indicator. So we're kind of using all of our testing and also just our observations. I mean, you can tell is a soil bacterial or fungal dominated by your soil structure and how it smells, um, but also what obviously is growing above ground. So there is like a plant successional process that will happen biologically. So think of your very primitive soils, your very bacterial soils, then we're going to get your early colonizers uh, like cheat grass. So very shallow root systems. Um, they actually feed specific bacteria. They keep it very primitive. Um, they throw out a lot of seeds. You know, I think of those as the bacterial dominated um, species. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have our like our fungal weed species. And these often like think of mullein, um, is it henbane, those big broad-leafed, uh, invasive kind of weed species. Often that are ones that animals don't really want to eat or they are like your more woody weeds, like your briars or your buckbrush or your rabbit brush or even your sagebrush. These, you know, in certain ways could, you know, some people might see them as weeds. It's like seeing pine trees or gum trees in a street, you know, like at what point is that a weed? Um, but it's all like, what what is this trying to tell me? Because the seed bank in your soil is absolutely massive. Um, 
And it's not because your neighbor's like allowing their thistles to seed and then blow over to you that you've got thistles. <laughs> it's about like what what is the signal that you are sending? And we send those signals through um, our grazing management or our overgrazing management. Um, and also you've got to think we have a historic loading in terms of what's happened to our soils in terms of you're not dealing with some kind of pristine resource. You're often dealing with 120 years potentially of set stocking or overgrazing or pasture sizes that are too large and having um, all your mineral and microbial ratios are out of whack. Um, and so sometimes we are having to do something like it might require more than just your grazing management. And that's hard sometimes for people that think you can solve everything with grazing. Um, but I've been on properties that have been doing fantastic um, holistic grazing management for over 30 years. And we're still seeing major trace element um, breakdowns, which then means um, we're not getting our rooting systems down and we're starting to see weeds come in after 30 or 40 years. And it's like, all right, something needs to shift or shift another gear um, because it might've been working so well so far, but actually where do we need to adapt? Where do we need to be so, um, some, add some flexibility? And so one of the, one of the ways, and, and I don't I don't think anything's original necessarily. There's there's nothing new under the sun. But one of the ways yeah. you hear people talk about it is uh, that that weeds are nature's cover crop. Is that a is that a good a good uh, understanding in your mind? Yeah, I think so. And um, she was on a ranch where I am right now, and we talked about uh, they're going through a healing crisis. And, you know, as you start to change your management, often we can see a flush of potassium and that will actually, because your potassium is bound inside plates in the clay. And as we flocculate or open a soil up because you're improving your grazing management, we can actually see a flush of some of these broadleaf weeds like thistles. Um, and, and that's just part of that healing process. Now, plants don't necessarily work on the same time frames as we do. So some of these dynamic accumulators, they might be bringing up copper. They could be doing that for the next 50 to 100 years. And um, I'm just not that patient. So I can't <laughs> feel yes, the weeds can do it. Um, actually, nature, all of nature can do it. We just need to get out of the way. But um, looking to, yeah, is this just a temporary kind of flush or I'm actually I'm losing production and it's affecting animal performance? Right, and what are some of the ways to to determine uh, whether or not it's temporary or or if it's uh, something kind of bigger, a bigger mm. picture issue? Yeah, and I think that's where you need to look at what those species are specifically. So if we look at um, ventinata, uh, medusa head, uh, cheatgrass, knapweed, these ones that people are really um, getting pretty upset about and seeing encroachment, um, rapid encroachment now. If you look at what they're doing biologically, they're pretty gnarly plants in terms of they are changing the microbial community to keep it in stasis. Like they feed, like you think of napweed, it feeds archaea, which are the most primitive organisms in the soil. Um, it also feeds out what we call monosaccharides, so your most simple sugars. And what they feed is diseases. And they don't feed like your more advanced species. They don't feed... Um, there's these organisms called entomopathogenic fungi, which are your fungi that eat insects. Um, they don't feed on the monosaccharides. So what that napweed does is it just keeps it real primitive, keeps the conditions for itself and excludes other, other plant species. So the successional process stalls. And same with, um, yeah, those other types of grasses. So we actually need to come in and we need to interrupt that 
violently, and that might be with um, heavy animal impact, um, manure and urine or bale grazing, um, or the use of some of the biostimulants or something. Um, I don't think that fire would help you in that case, just thinking about it, because I think that still keeps it in that, in that bacterial zone, but something that's going to really feed your more advanced species. So we've got some trial work here in Montana that hopefully we'll have the results next year uh, with ventanata grass. But um, looking at, yeah, if we're feeding more advanced fungi and more beneficial organisms, do we interrupt that germination signal? Because they're just annuals, um, those grasses anyway. So we should be able to interrupt it. But what we're seeing now is the increased encroachment of these species. Um, and part of it too, if you look, if you dig up their root systems, they have pathetic little roots. Like the fact that <laughs> breeding is just amazing, but they're, they're really taking advantage of overgrazing, or not having your deep-rooted perennials in there, because if you had deep-rooted perennials, they would actually outcompete and grow inside those root systems and, and, and do those plants out of a job. But because, yeah, they are doing such a powerful job feeding primitive organisms, we have to interrupt it. Um, and that's that's why it's like every, every plant's trying to tell you something different or has a different signature. So learning to what is it trying to tell me and then how, how can I maybe just push it along? Yeah. And so I guess kind of what comes to my mind is, is maybe the idea of talking, talking a, a young producer, uh, maybe off the ledge. <laughs> They're like, oh, okay, the only way that I can solve this is through uh, some kind of a, a chemical, uh, mm. you know, uh, approach. And so I, I yeah. guess you've mentioned, you mentioned uh, heavy impact. And I know that, you know, every situation is different in some of those things, heavy impact or uh, bale grazing. Uh, could you r run through some of those ways that we should approach maybe even the different, you know, we come in, we see these plant species and this mix of species telling us this, what are some of the ways that we should approach uh, those from a, from a management perspective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's starting to note where are we seeing this encroachment. Um, one of the things I like to use is a refractometer, so measuring the bricks, and that actually gives us an insight to who's photosynthesizing the highest. So is your management more suited to this weedy species than it is to the species you're trying to grow? Mm. And so it can be very insightful. So if I see that um, I'm changing my management Maybe you do get a flush of a thistle, just as an example. Um, and then you go out and measure the bricks and you see that the thistle has a lower photosynthesis than the grasses. It's on its way out. And so it's, it helps kind of give you more confidence to just leave it alone. It's just going through a, that healing crisis, that transition, and it's not here for the long term. Whereas if you find its bricks might be two or three times as mm. high as the grasses, it's settling in. Yeah, and then um, we really need to look at yeah, that more aggressive um, if people are using herbicides, and I'm not a massive fan of them, but there are things that we can do. So if we take this leaf tissue test and we see that this plant is high in boron, um, molybdenum, we could put that in with our herbicides and we could also put in a fulvic acid, which is going to help to increase your herbicide efficacy. Um, and then we're going to get trace elements into the system. And so then we're, we're, we're addressing the underlying driver for why we have those species um, and so then you're not going to have to come back and, and repeat because most people are spraying a herbicide and then they're having to come back and spray another herbicide like right. it's not like the herbicide's the one hit wonder um, and that the fulvic acid doesn't work with all herbicides of course so just um, make sure you test um, do a spray test yeah and this is I think where our adaptiveness is and our our science on the ground has 
as ranchers is in terms of you know really trying some of these different ideas in terms of how how big an impact do I need and what were the weather conditions when I did that because maybe you did a really heavy impact and it rained and you created this cow pack and now suddenly you've got thistles everywhere um yeah so just having that observation in terms of what what was it that was happening in this area when I grazed here last time that I'm now seeing these species um mm. yeah yeah. Yeah. And is do you do you look at herbicides um as a break glass in case of emergency type of a, a use case or is there how do you think about that? Oh, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um yes, but in saying that I've never used a herbicide in my life. But you know, <laughs> I work with producers who and especially like in cropping, um I feel like in ranching no because we we can do things it just probably depends on the scale of your operation and like um you know i've I've worked with some people down in um nevada you know the 370,000 acres 80 percent of it's burnt at one point and they're covered in cheatgrass and it's like okay so where do we start focusing our energy and at least having some ground cover is better than no ground cover you know and that's the risk with herbicide is you're potentially going to make a situation worse um, but looking at let's concentrate on the areas where we can really lift performance and production. And if that starts around the barns and then we gradually move outwards until hopefully we can get that grazing management on all 370,000 acres. Um, but just really, really trying to concentrate where you can make an impact instead of spreading our resources really thin and, uh, you know, potentially being out there spraying all the time. Um, but yeah, I think if you're going to be investing in spraying, then invest in, in, and something that's going to help repair. So yeah, trace elements and carbon foods. Yeah, sure. And is that, uh, those are kind of along the lines of, um, inoculants or, or, uh, different kinds of more natural ideas or, or, uh, yeah. products. Yeah. So more complex foods. Um, mm. yeah, I think a lot of the time, um, I think of most of American rangeland as just being sleepy um, and also don't get offended, but constipated. <laughs> so we have these hugely constipated soils that are, they have so much mineral in them and yet we're not seeing that necessarily come through into the plants. Um, and so by using complex foods and what that means is um, they might have fats and sugars and proteins and all sorts of things in them. So they are naturally sourced Um I do like using fish hydrolysate, but I find in this country your fish hydrolysate is quite smelly um, and that can put people off. Um, <laughs> in New Zealand, our fish hydrolysate is made differently and it just doesn't, it's not as stinky. Um, but yeah, things like a little bit of seaweed or um, I actually train people in making their own biostimulants or making their own chelated minerals so that um, instead of something like if you commercially brought it, it cost you $50 an acre, it cost you a dollar. And so, <laughs> I kind of like things like that, like just put, you know, power back into ranchers' hands, make it very economic. So the biggest cost really is um, is getting something out if you needed to get something out. Um, a lot of what I see out there too is uh, a lot of rangeland is very deficient in sodium and people probably think, oh, but we've got these alkali patches or whatever. And it's because that sodium's come off the rangeland and, and concentrated down in valley floors or eastern Montana or whatever. And... Um, <laughs> 
there um, we see a benefit by using um, things like sea minerals or some of the more mineralized salts is something that we might use to 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 wake that soil up if it's sort of gone to sleep um, but yeah there's lots of different tools in our toolkit I guess beyond necessarily just grazing or you know doing things like putting seed through cows so that we um, you know if you are using heavy animal impact why not put um, some of those perennial seeds in the mix if, if you're not seeing them coming away through your management um, so just yeah I think just making just realizing that there's more tools that we can use you mentioned chelated minerals and sea minerals and some of those things. Um, is there a benefit to running those through a cow or is is the application going to be, you know, out of a, a spray unit of some kind? Uh, yeah, it, we, we, um, we do see some of the trace elements coming through for cattle, but things like salt doesn't because those animals need it. Um, but yeah, we've we've seen um, zinc, for instance, lifting in the New Zealand context, where they use a lot of zinc um, for to control a disease called facial eczema. Um, we're seeing zinc levels actually get really high in soils. So we do it is possible to lift it through animals, um, but you need to be feeding it to them, not just um, you know, like not just a little bit that they need for their own maintenance. Yeah, I want to share a story of I went down to see Betsy Ross at Betsy Ross Grass Fed. Yep, I've heard of her. I've, I've, uh, she's been suggested. <laughs> oh, you should chat with her. She's yeah. a firecracker. Yeah, but um, she does a similar process in what I do in terms of leaf testing um, weeds, and she did leaf testing on mesquite, um, and found that the mesquite was very high in some trace elements. She made up a brew that had the fulvic acid and trace elements, and she applied this to the mesquite. And within three weeks, the Cambrian layer on that on those on the on the trunks all cracked open hmm. um, and you can go there and three years later like she's got these huge old mesquite trees that are dead um but all the grass around it's come away so that that idea of um you know even reading trees as weeds you know i know some people are dealing with conifers and yeah you know those kind of species take a look what are they trying to tell you and and you uh, ran through those those signals, the six signals, and the, la- the last one that you mentioned. You said was kind of one that is fairly exciting to you right now. Mm. Could you talk a little mm. bit more about that? Yeah. So these release valve weeds. So as many of you know, you know nitrates or nitrites in the environment. You know microbes don't like it. We don't like it. Livestock don't like it. So if if we were to drink water that was high in nitrates, um, then like in Australia, they've had blue baby syndromes and babies have actually died from drinking the water in Perth because of the high nitrates. So it robs oxygen out of your blood, which then, you know, that's going to be linked to um, being a cancer causing as well. But so nitrates in the environment, um, most microbes, yeah, nitrites. So there are specific plants that have adapted to pull this out and convert it. And so those are things like our foxtail barley grass, our nettles our thistles our kosher fat hen fat hen a red red root pigweed um i never know sometimes how people common names can be different um but think of these are the weeds that you're going to see around the edge of um, yards or maybe where animals have been camping under trees where you've got a whole lot of manure excess nitrates um and so they're really interesting ones to take a look at do you start to see an advancement of those kind of species then that's telling you that your microbial um, 
like the chain to convert that to ammonia forms is broken down and then we get that signal and these weeds will basically germinate. It's also telling us that we're low in your predators in the soil, so your protozoa and your nematodes, because they stop that bust and boom cycle that's happening with bacteria that's causing this flush of nitrates, if that's not too complicated, sorry. (laughs) I love it, I geek out on it. But um, yeah, these cycles occur in the soil and then we get this flush and basically those weeds will germinate. So if you start to see um, foxtail barley coming in, take a look. Um, Foxtail can also be indicating sodium. So you need to to go, is it encroaching because actually I'm starting to create um, sodic or alkali conditions or is it because... Um, I'm missing the predators or I've got low organic matter. But some other ones I got really interested in was um, milk thistle or variegated thistle and seeing this um, around where people were drenching animals. Like, so they might have like a sacrifice field where they put animals after they drench them um, and seeing this weed turn up. Um, and some of these ones that are chemicals or toxins can be quite gnarly. Like, well, you you guys don't have Bathurst burr, but, some of the Australian ones are pretty evil looking plants, you know, because everything in Australia wants to kill you, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> You've got these crazy gnarly weeds that um, are telling you that potentially there's heavy metals in the system. Hmm. So milk thistle, the first time I saw it was in this um, coolie, gulch, gully, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it wasn't anywhere else on the farm. And I said to the farmer, what's happening there? And he said, oh, it's an old dump and we, we put some batteries in there. And so the batteries were leaking and this milk thistle was basically germinating to help break it down, which is cool. So this is the phytoremediation. And then I saw it in the San Andreas fault line um, on properties that were doing a pretty good job with their grazing, yet they were getting more and more of this milk thistle. Um, And then when you look at what's happening on the San Andreas fault line, and we saw it in New Zealand after the 2010... um, uh, Christchurch earthquake. Christchurch earthquake Uh, and it's the funniest thing I was sitting on the plane next to this um she was she was a nuclear physicist or something like just just, as you sit next to people on the plane or in the old days before COVID right and she said to me well what happens is deeper down there's uranium so when these Hmm. plates start to grind then they release radon gas and so wherever we saw this release of radon gas and if you look at places around California the big hot spots of um, radon, but also of milk thistle. And then what interested me is like milk thistle is what we use for humans to to do a liver detox. And so here you've got these plants that are basically doing a liver detox on the land. And so I'm like, wow, that is so cool. So yeah, getting really interested in, in how, yeah, some of this phytoremediation is what these plants are trying to do. Maybe you do have a buildup of a heavy metal and especially once we degrade our um, organic matter levels, then your plants now have no protection against heavy metals or sodium or, or whatever. So um, we're going to see the encroachment of more and more and more of these types of species, unfortunately. Kind of the next the next direction I want to go is how do we uh, determine the best time of year to uh, attack these species? You know, um, is it through through uh, tissue testing? Is it through bricks testing? Is it all of the above? What are some of the tools that we can use from observation to help us determine the best time of the year to to add impact and what that impact should be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I can pull you up on the use of the word attack, though. Okay. 
Sure, hit. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, oh, you weren't thinking attacking plants. You're thinking how do we attack the problem? Uh, right. With, yes. Oh, got it. That's right. Um, yeah. So yeah, certainly bricks, leaf tissue tests when the plants are actively growing. So if they've already, you know, senesced and are browning off, then yeah, you've kind of missed your window. Like especially with bricks, you want sap, obviously. Um, and then we want it when the biology is is really working well. So I did a study recently um, in the Tom Minor Basin, which is on the edge of Yellowstone National Park. Um, they have the highest numbers of predators in the lower 48. So these guys have resident high numbers of resident bears, and they're all grizzly bears. And what's happening is the bears are coming down closer and closer to human buildings because of a plant called caraway. So caraway is a Eurasian um, plant that kind of looks like a parsnip or a, yeah, a white carrot and it, it's super tasty. And so what happens is the bears come in and fall and they dig up that caraway and it's, you know, full of starch. So it's going to help them get to bed and have all the energy that they need. So we did sampling um, in spring on the caraway just to have a look at what is the caraway high in and also what were the soil conditions that allowed it to expand or where was it not doing very well? So we tested areas where we didn't find any caraway and we tested whether caraway um, had lower bricks or maybe you're seeing more insect attack, like, you know, not the conditions for caraway. And then when caraway was really, really healthy. And what we found was that the soil conditions, what the caraway liked were very bacterial soils that were low in boron. And if we had high boron and fungal dominated soils, we didn't see any caraway. So it gave those ranches, it gives them some access in terms of, all right, what can I do to shift it away from bacterial dominance? Um, and maybe I can put a little bit of boron on, or if they were going to herbicide, which I don't, I don't think they're going to, but just that insight in terms of can we shift those conditions so we're not bringing bears in. So I think it had, it was interesting to see like other applications for these ideas. And you mentioned earlier uh, Ventanata, a, a grass that's kind of encroaching in a lot of places. Uh, and I've, I've seen other people who I appreciate their perspective say that it's, it's one that we're going to hear a lot more about in, in the near future. Uh, yeah. Ariel, Ariel Greenwood being one of those who uh, I, I appreciate her her perspective as somebody who's thinking through some of these things. And uh, so what are what are some of the where where is it now? Uh, where is it headed? What are is it something to be very concerned about? What are what are some of those those ideas? It's interesting to be in Montana where people are like, Venta, what? Uh, <laughs> and when you're in Oregon, they're like, yeah, that's my grass. You know, like <laughs> seeing Oregon, like just huge swaths of, of Ventanata and their, um, how fluent they are around that grass, like knowing what an issue it is. So I, I think um, if you are in rangeland areas and you haven't seen it yet, um, train yourself to know what it looks like. Because I think in some places in Montana, it's been here for a while and people thought it was cheatgrass or Japanese brome. Um, but it, it does look different, has a different um, seed head. It goes very red um, late in the season. Mm. Um, so I think go and Google it if you haven't heard of it and go and start to have a look. And what it, we're seeing that it's even more aggressive than cheatgrass in terms mm. of, um, you know, we, we've managed to sh shift cheatgrass very quickly just through grazing management, um, whereas the Ventanata is doing um, more like what the knapweed is in terms of very primitive soil conditions. I haven't seen the research on it about if it's feeding archaea, but I suspect that is what it's doing. So just keeping those soils 
um, really primitive. So yeah, what Ariel's doing is is doing some trial work in terms of well, if we bale graze on top of it, is that enough? Just into in, you know adding in more complex foods like straw or hay, manure, urine, ripping it up with hooves, because what we're seeing is it's not palatable at, at any time of the year, um, and livestock are just going around it and avoiding it, and so then you you just end up with these soil systems that um, totally shut down. Yeah, unfortunately, you know. It is in part that we have um, all across the world is these species that don't have their natural biocontrols, but in a bigger part really is that we are creating the conditions for them. You know, if you've got bare ground, if you're overgrazing, um, yeah, you're setting the signal for these things to proliferate. Are there some of these uh, weeds, again, in quotations, uh, mm-hmm. that we we are shooting ourselves in the foot by by running only one species. Is there an opportunity to bring in another species of, of livestock that can really uh, do us some favors in, in yep. those ways? Totally, totally. Yeah, and I, and I think of some of the action and the different ways that some of these different species graze um, or even, you know, thinking of chickens or turkeys in terms of that disturbance, that scratching, um, that, you know, getting in, into soils differently. Um, but yeah, it's interesting when you look at, at a lot of the New Zealand context, we've, we've often always run cattle and sheep together. That's just what, what we do. Um, and they're to come here and go, well, here's a whole lot of species that we know that sheep and goats will certainly eat. Um, and all you're running is cattle. And then I don't know, it's that thing of like nature already has these answers for us. We just, yeah, need to be thinking more diversity, but you talk goats to, to most ranches and they run screaming from the room. So, <laughs> but you know, I love, I think one of the best meat meals I ever had was goat. So um, I, yeah, I'm all about eating goats. <laughs> that we're, I think we're going on two or three weeks drinking strictly goat milk at our house. Oh. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, if you, I, yeah. my theory, and I have no, nothing to back this up. My an- anecdotal research says that as long as you don't have a buck around, there's the goat milk is amazing. You know, I think oh, yeah. as soon as you tr- bring a buck in, it tastes like a buck. But uh, if you don't have a buck around, <laughs> it tastes great to me. So don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I think, um, you know, the more I've been to more places that are using range riding and shepherding and, um, hmm. you know, I think perhaps there is that need to think about yeah, how do we return to some of the diversity of species and, and how do we, yeah, manage them. And the, you know, the, the e-collars are out in America now. So um, I, I think they're only on cattle, but I wonder if we could put them on goats, um, you know, because I, I know what it's like to manage goats. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I really, I do like to kind of hammer that idea of, of stacked enterprises or, or at least um, not being, you know, you don't have to be the one to run the goats if you can find somebody who's willing to bring them to you. You know, yeah. uh, I think of the Permans uh, in in Central South Dakota. They are they're bringing in outside sheep, and I think they come with a herder. You know, and mm-hmm. so the herd they're doing the work, and you know, it's it's not something that they've had to change a lot of things on their place because the sheep graze enough differently from the cattle that they're able to run them through a lot of the same places the cows do. And, and it's still, it's just another income stream for them and it's doing good things for their soil as well. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think we're, we're bringing more young people onto the land too. And I think we need to be finding those opportunities, especially around succession. And yeah, I like what the James ranch is doing, you know, like, 
in Colorado, you know, figure out what, what different things you bring to the ranch and bring that back. Yeah. Mm. You're not running cows. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Expound on that a little bit. Sorry. Oh, so James Ranch, um, they had, they had five children and they, when they reached 18, they said, right, you've got to leave the ranch, go and get an education and then um, figure out if you did want to come back, what enterprise you could run. And so the first um, child that came back, I think, set up a dairy farm, which is still running cows, I guess, but producing milk. Um, one of the other children, they were doing pigs. Um, they started making cheese. They set up a restaurant. So one of the children came back mm. and set up a restaurant. But like just thinking of those stacking enterprises that could actually be complementary. Oh, yeah, and chickens. So running chickens. Um, so every child had a, like a freestanding enterprise that, that benefits land and benefited the whole ranch. So the ranch is more successful as a whole. But, yeah, I mean, I, I see a few people running that model, and I think it's a great idea. And I think that one of the things that we've danced around a little bit, um, and just another another anecdote from my own personal experience is, uh, and again, this is this is uh, back to that issue of who knows what you call a weed given your territory. <laughs> uh, you know, it might be different somewhere else. But uh, according to my NRCS guy, last year uh, there was this patch of of smartweed everywhere, and or at least in this one spot. Where it's it's low, uh, it's heavy clay soils. Last year we had I think thirty five to forty inches of rain, where we usually get fifteen. Um, mm. And then this year, almost in that exact same spot, is uh, all curly dock. And mm-hmm. so there's that succession. Like I don't I don't think I could find a smart weed plant, but it's all curly dock mm-hmm. now. And then. So I took a picture from from a, a next to a fence post, so I kind of have that reference point in which direction I was facing of that smartweed place, and now or of the curly dock this year, and now next year I'm kind of looking forward to see what's there. So I guess uh, talk yeah. a little bit more about that succession in the process of those those plants pulling things up out of the soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. What are what are what are some of those ideas? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because smartweed and dock, I often think of as indicating similar things, which is, um, I mean, some people think of them as waterlogging, but actually it's surface crusting, so soils that are not necessarily breathing very well. And then smartweed doesn't have a root system that, say, a dock does. So if you, you, again, digging up plants and looking at their roots is a great indicator in terms of what are they trying to do. Well, you know, a dock is opening up and allowing more air movement and um, allowing that gas exchange and, and, and healing the soil if, if, it, if it's allowed to continue to go through that succession. Or if it's an area that's always going to be wet and boggy, then maybe it never goes past that successional point. You know, but they, if we dig up those roots, we can have a look at what what is it trying to perhaps do. Or if you think of um, reeds and rushes as well, like if you dig them up, you'll see the soil's really orange around them because what they're doing is they're pumping oxygen down their roots um, so that they don't rot basically in those wet conditions and then you get those iron oxides forming. But um, they are actually healing soil and if we allow that to continue to go through a phase, then, um, you know, where's it going to end? Is it only ever going to be a wetland or is it, yeah, going to start to become more like a sponge? I am... I had a rancher contact me recently to complain that he's got these springs popping up on, on hillsides and it's a pain because he's trying to move livestock around and he's got these springs. And um, I told him it's a first world problem and he should complain to somebody else. 
but um, what what you see is a different those those springs then have different plant species that then that's more reflective of of what they're doing. So you'll see reeds and rushes or even smart weeds on hillsides. It's not because um, necessarily it's waterlogged. It's it's that those soils aren't breathing. Go and have a look, dig it up, um, and just see yeah what what is happening. Um, but I, I love that you're observing that clay and just kind of because it's always in transition and in flux and this could be something that is just a short term, like thinking of um, one thing that knapweed and uh, foxtail barley both do is they are big pumps for mycorrhizal spores. So um, foxtail barley has a mycorrhizae that's adapted to live in sodic soils and it's pumping all this mycorrhizae out there, which actually will be beneficial and then help that next successional wave of whatever, whatever's coming through. So we can allow them to obviously to go through that phase and just observe it and learn from it. Um, but again, it depends on, on like how long is the successional wave and right. uh, is yep. it telling me that something's coming? You know, mm. I think um, for that sodic, it, like, yeah, seeing the foxtail barley where we're seeing sodic conditions, it's really telling you take action now. Mm. Don't mess about because, yeah, you could end up with soils that are, and it gets really challenging to heal. And we, I mean, we ha- we are healing sodic soils, but it's not a short process or a quick process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you you just described my place. We we moved on there in um, August. No, middle of October. Middle of October, twenty nineteen. So a year ago. Um, so I, I I calved my dad's cows on one one spot and fed hay there, uh, where it was very very degraded. Uh, and then I brought in some outside cattle to graze through the whole place, kind of one pass this this year, and get get some good uh, manure distribution, animal impact on on as many acres as possible uh, in as short a time as possible to get some recovery going. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's but other than that, um, it's been set, stocked, and hayed. <laughs> that's the only only management yeah. that's ever been been on that place. So uh, it's mm-hmm. it's. Uh, and it's and it's on top of all that it's heavy clay soils so uh you know yeah. it, there's silt loam ridges but other than that it's it's pretty much heavy clay soil so we're we've got a long road ahead of us but it's exciting to me because i get to watch mm-hmm. uh and hopefully see management improving improving the, yeah. the landscape yeah and i think adding in those microbial foods which is your manure and your straw and and organic matter and just kind of keep working on that. And then again, think of it as that healing crisis that you potentially are going to go through because those heavy clays, you've got so much mineral in there that's often just bound up and we start to open that up and release it. And you can get all sorts of really funky, you know, weed plant species, but just to be uh, like an open inquiry of watching that and not freaking out. Um, And then, yeah. And, it's just, I think when, um, when we see systems kind of get stuck, you know, when, when we are seeing more and more, why do I keep talking about thistles? I must just, I've been hanging out with people that have got thistles. So thistles keep coming to mind, but, you know, like seeing more and more of that and less and less grass. Um, but, you know, cows will eat thistles and cows will eat knapweed um, and they will eat cheatgrass at certain times. But yeah, so I think it's like, well, it's not a weed specifically for the cow, but what is it trying to tell us? How does that inform, you know, like, is that impact of straw optimal or actually did I put too much on and I've actually shut down that 
that process by putting on too much material, especially like some of these clay soils could be really high in potassium and you're adding a whole lot of potassium. Um, then we could see some more of those broadleaf weed. I'm trying to think like the ones that have got the burrs, there have been loads of them lately. Um, my dog's been covered in them all underneath their armpits. <laughs> um, but yeah, those type of species that have a lot of those burrs, um, they can be telling us about an excess of potassium. Um, mm. Yeah, And then if we keep putting on hay, we can keep increasing that, which is why you want to, you know, do your leaf tissue tests and, and your plant or your soil tests and just go, okay, what, what, what is it that would suit this landscape to rehabilitate? Well, I'd like to move in, if you got some time, I'd like to move into some questions from the private Facebook group. Um, oh, yeah. And I guess the one I, I, I'll start with is, uh, I think this is a fellow Kiwi, uh, <laughs> is there a way to farm with zero inputs or another way to say it, are we at the mercy of inputs being either conventional or biodynamic forever? Biodynamic forever, that's interesting. Um, no, I, I don't, I, I definitely don't think we're going to be at the mercy of inputs forever. Um uh, many operators I work with, I guess, are um, once you address some of these catalysts or what I call the enabling factors, like if it is a trace element issue, um, then that system starts to rehabilitate. I guess you've got to think about uh, input seeds as well. Uh, you know, seeing people do some incredible stuff with soil rehabilitation um, using, you know, cover crops. But if you get your grazing optimal, and the trace elements are functional and that system is humming now, then you're going to keep building soil. It's not like if you look at a, a teaspoon of soil and hold it in your hand, what you're looking at are minerals that are not in a plant available form. We're never going to run out of minerals because that mineralization process happens deeper in the soil. So you get microbiology and worms and ants and all of that mixing those layers and bringing that material up and making it bioavailable. We're never going to run out of minerals. I mean, that whole thing is such a conventional well, it's a great way to sell product, I guess. Um, but <laughs> my definite view is that, no, we're not going to continue to have to put inputs into the system. But you've got to also recognise that there's times when things happen that maybe aren't optimal. You know, you put down your hay and you've got all this bedding and then you get a 10-inch rainfall, which I've seen people have, and you can make an awful big mess. And how long is it going to take to recover? I mean, some of these soils are recovering within a year and some of them we can still see it 20 years later. <laughs> that was the rainfall event from 1880. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's always a case-by-case -case basis and we don't have to shut the door. Like, we don't have to be... What I get concerned about is people get really dogmatic. You can only graze or you can only do cover crops or you must never. And it's like, well, who says? There's no reason why 20 years down the track you don't go, well... Actually, I could do with a little bit of phosphate or, or whatever it is. Like no one has to be stuck. But, yeah, I do believe that we can totally close the loops. Um, but I also think there's a lot that we can make on ranch or on farm with, with materials that we're already growing. So, you know, doing compost or vermicast um, or, you know, those kind of extracts, we can have that all within the boundaries of the ranch. We don't need to be bringing in external inputs. And, and some of these I think we've covered, but I don't want to assume that there isn't more to say about them, obviously. So um, the next one I, I've got is how do we identify, how do I identify what targeted, uh, targeted amendment, man? <laughs> how do I identify what targeted amendment to use based on the weeds that are established? Yeah, so that's where your 
soil and leaf tissue tests would be informative. Um, and so, yeah, what we're finding with these chelated trace elements is we're only putting on like, and I don't know what, I'm sorry, you guys need to catch up with metric. What is this thing? I have no idea what it is. I keep trying to figure it out. But anyway, like we're putting on probably like a teaspoon of actual trace element per acre. So just these incredibly um, chelated forms based on what we're seeing the plant doing. So let's say it is very high in boron. We're going to put this tiny amount of boron back on and it is almost like homeopathics. Um, so we're talking talking parts per billion, I guess, of application. And, and what I'm seeing more and more is that we need less, not more. We need mm. the, the biological system, the plant systems are so sensitive. It's us that's running around with hammers everywhere. And it's like the, <laughs> the plant just needs this little tickle and, and will respond. So, um, yeah, with, with the different amendments, I just think less is more. And are those foliar applications or how, how is that being applied? Yeah, well, I hope you've got ground cover all year round. So it's going to go on a, <laughs> as a foliar. Um, if people were drilling seed, then we're going to put stuff in the seed box, um, like, yeah, biologicals or vermicast or some kind of biostimulants that could go down with the seed. Um, like if you are doing a pass at all, um, otherwise, yeah, foliars, and we're doing what we call the slurry sprays. So it means that we're putting something like vermicast or compost out as a slurry with your trace elements. It's got all the biology in it, and it works as, as these um, these quorum signals, so these chemical microbial signals. So, you again, you don't need a lot. Like we're doing like two pounds of vermicast per acre, tiny amounts. Yeah. And is there an op optimal time of year to apply compost tea? Uh, would a deep frost line negatively impact fall applied vermicast or compost tea? This is from from uh, Minnesota, so that's a little bit mm -hmm. of a context. Yeah, um, I think if you're doing fall application, uh, you really want to be applying when the plants are active. So there's no point really applying stuff when you're in dormancy, unless you're trying to put stuff on like what we call the hygiene cleanups. So biological or mineral stimulants that are going to help to break down, let's say thatch or um, litter or stubble, um, that will actually keep walking, working away. Even under the snow, it's amazing what life you'll see still humming under the snowpack. So I don't think it's a total waste um, trying to put compost teas down in fall when it gets really cold. Um, so again, it's like thinking about your cover crops. What is your goal with this particular application? Um, and so the humification process happens over winter and the mineralization process happens in the growing season. So if we're putting teas or extracts down, then we're helping to stimulate that humification process. Uh, how do you remove poisonous weeds throughout pastures without herbicide control? Um... I guess it depends. Like, it's so interesting to me. We were testing um, death camas recently. Mm -hmm watching the cows in the fields and those cows were not eating any of the death camas. I mean, this field was so thick with it. Um, it was super interesting to look at it nutritionally. Like it was, if they could eat it, it was incredibly nutritional, but they knew not to eat it. Um, but I think the poisonous weeds is the same ways as other things, figure out what it's trying to tell you um, and then address that underlying issue. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess it depends if it's larkspur or something that animals uh, or like hoary, Horiolism, hoary cress, uh, if they are actually eating it, um, then sure, that might be where you want to get a bit, a bit more aggressive.
Um, but I do find animals are smarter than us a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I, I was at a, um, well, when I, when I, you know, way back to the start of the podcast, I guess I was in, in the High Plains Ranch practicum and, and we went and toured this ranch and he had moved from March calving to, to May and June calving. And, uh, he, you know, being being the young zealot I was at that time, I, I was looking around. I'm like, well, wouldn't he have been better off to, you know, cull the herd and buy May and May and June calving cows because his March cows were worth more than the May and June calving cows, and mm-hmm. uh, and he's the you know the the instructor said nope you don't necessarily need to ask him that question. I can tell you what the answer is. It's these cows know not to eat larkspur, and yep. bringing in outside cattle that don't would have been. A disaster. <laughs> uh, so very good. Yeah, very so, good. Yeah, I wonder yeah. though, like how many you could keep of the herd. Like, would mm. it be percent would be enough to keep to train the next generation? Um, right. We see some training. Uh, I saw that um, I was talking to Alejandro Carrillo down in Mexico, and um, how he brought in just a few bulls that knew about eating prickly pear, and it only he said within six months the whole herd's eating prickly pear. Mm. Um, you know, so like how many is it that influences behavior? I don't know. Interesting. I'm sure Provenza probably knows the answer. <laughs> uh, does Do you recommend shredding if goat weed or other is very thick? And I'm not sure if this is the same as going in and cutting. Like my my dad bought a, a hayfield that was pretty much solid, solid thistle, and, and he just cut it three times in one year and reduced it drastically the next year so is that is that a practice Mm -hmm. you're a fan of or is is shredding referring to something else (laughs) so goat weed is um i have to make sure we're talking about the same thing that's like a shrub there's i don't have any further context um i know i'm thinking this is uh this young lady is from texas but i'm not sure about that yeah i think when we're talking about some of the shrubs um oh shredding that would make sense (laughs) then 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 Yes, just uh, there's so many different common names. Right. Um, um, I, I saw a cool thing. My father actually had um, it was a like a a drone shredder. This thing was huge. This huge machine that was just without <laughs> a driver in it, um, off the side of these really steep hillsides to shred um, gorse, which is an invasive New Zealand plant that's covered in big prickles, and um, they, we had woolly. Um, oh, woolly, woolly nightshade, um, mm. toxic plants, big, big, big plants. And um, it was incredible just to see it all get shredded up. And then as long as you listen to what that plant was trying to tell you, which is these very fungal dominated soils, very sleepy, and then you go to action and you're going to impact on that. So you're going to, um, and you could even hook this up if you had the shredder, of like spraying molasses at the same time. So if we are dealing with these woody weeds, molasses is going to help to stimulate the bacteria, help to break down that material and just speed speed up the decomposition, but also change the germination signal. So we could use a bit of molasses, if it's a trace element again, add that in. But if you're going to be out there with a piece of equipment, can you rig something up so you can be putting beneficial stuff down at the same time? But I mean, I've seen areas where people have um, mechanically kind of ripped up sage or even you know fire management of some of these landscapes and you can see what benefit that that is and if you think you know a lot of these landscapes no one wants to talk about fire but you know (laughs) fire was a big part of how these landscapes were managed and and built and 
um, yeah, so I, I'm not against things like that occasionally. Not the once a year burn that seems to be common in some areas, but, um, you know, once every 10 years to just, you know, revitalize an area, I don't have a problem with that. If yeah. you have a, a invasion of a species, say leafy spurge, ventanata, um, uh, cheatgrass, something like that, is there is there ever a, a herbicide solution or is there always a, a grazing solution or something else that you would you would uh, go with first and then maybe next year if that didn't work or if it gets worse we try something else yeah i would look to grazing first i mean i think grazing is always your number one tool for everything that we we talk about and and the grazing is why you have those weeds because you haven't been doing what your landscape's requiring you to do hmm. which is probably overgrazing in areas or pasture sizes are too large, you're set stocking, you're putting animals out in the field at the same time of the year, you're carving in the same area every time of the year, you know, just that kind of lack of adaptiveness or flexibility or, yeah. And so the weeds are here to give you a good slap around the chops and go, hey, up. you can't keep doing that. Um, yeah. And so your herbicide would always be the last, my last tool. And you earlier were wanting to pull back a little bit on the word attack. Uh, I want to give you freedom to to say whatever you would like to say about the language that we use when we start to talk about approaches to management. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it, it just speaks back into these paradigms, isn't it? And mm. generative agriculture is a total shift in, in how we see and observe and interact and think about landscapes. And I think the old command and control and attack and dominate and kill is the old paradigm. And, and we step into, all right, how do I align myself with nature? How do I observe? How do I work with? She's a lot smarter than any of us. So listening to those keys and responding to, as opposed to reacting, um, yeah, that whole knee jerk stuff. You know, like it, it, sometimes when I'm working with conventional cropping, it feels like every day they're at war. I'm like, oh, that's tiring. <laughs> like, where's the joy in that? Yeah. Um, and so I think, and we're seeing some exciting stuff happening. I think we're getting closer to organic no-till, which, um, you know, I had an organic professor tell me about 20 years ago that anyone that said that was a liar and it's not possible and and we're starting to see some really really neat stuff in the cropping with intercropping and and crimping crops and i think we still got a way to go but we're getting closer um yeah so let's bring on the innovation and trying to figure out how do we do this without the use of harsh chemicals yeah very good yeah that's that's a topic on on uh, the list of things that i'd like to get I'll explore a little bit farther the idea of no kill farming so yeah that's yeah. uh, something that's interesting to me. Uh, last one is what about some tools to find info on indicator species appropriate to your region or context? Are there good resources out there that you can recommend? My book. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Um, and uh, When Weeds Talk by Jay McCayman. Um, this is one that I think everybody should have in their reading list. Um, it breaks weeds down in terms of their major minerals, trace elements, and soil conditions. Uh, it's made for an American audience. Um, so, yeah, people maybe are listening from other places in the world. You need to do your own leaf tissue testing and build your own observations. And a lot of these weeds are common around the world. Um, then Charles Walters' books, um, Weeds Control Without Poisons, is a really good one. 
Um, but I think we are all building our own, I guess, repertoire in terms of trying to figure out what is it that these different species are doing in different contexts. So what might be happening in California doesn't necessarily apply in Vermont. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, this is very much citizen science stuff. Sure. And it is, is kind of back to something Alan Williams said when he was on the podcast and in an article, I think he, he ended up publishing is all research, all research is ultimately anecdotal that, yeah. you know, you've got that N equals one experiment is kind of the, the, uh, what you've got to work with as far as what works on your place. Yeah. And what works in different areas of your place. I mean, I can almost point to a line in the carpet on my place where we change from heavy clay to silt loam, you know, Mm -hmm. as you start to work up. So it it just changes that quickly. Yes. So I encourage people to get a shovel, dig holes, look at plant root systems, look at where they're growing. Think about what happened here in the past. Think about, um, yeah, difference in management, doing doing the testing, but it's really about bringing all those observations together is where the key is in terms of what are these species trying to tell you and just keep building up your knowledge bank. Perfect. After they've bought your book, read it, listened to it, <laughs> um, where, where can they go to find out more about where you'll be? Uh, are yeah. you, are you, <laughs> are you finding, finding ways to uh, continue to, to gather people in groups and, and talk about these yeah. things? Yeah, not so much. I had 46 full-day workshops cancelled, so that was uh, a bit of a shock to the system. Um, so instead, yeah, I've taken the training online. So the first course has been released is being released this Sunday, but it's only available for four days um, because we're going to do an intensive. Um, so by the time you release this, it might already be gone, but it will be back out in a few months' time. Um, and so that is the beginning observation school in terms of yeah how, how do I measure things and what is it trying to tell me so I'm excited about that school and we will have another three out next year by the way I'm going so yeah taking taking learning online but the idea with these courses is that it's really practical so you've got to go out in the field and do those dem- you know do those practical things yourself hmm. very good yeah this is currently uh the idea was to release this October 12th so in a yeah. in a couple of months from from then people could could yes. track down that course. Yes. And is that all on the Integrity Soils website as far as those those opportunities? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. So yeah, we'll have links to that uh, in the show notes page, workingcows.net slash 159. People can go there, check it out, uh, buy your book, uh, buy a book to share with a friend, uh, all those things. So <laughs> <laughs> We like it. And, and on audio so they can practice their New Zealand accent. Yes, perfect. Yeah, there's so many so many things I, I, uh, that sound so much better when a, a New Zealander says it. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. I think all right. Anyway. So lovely to talk to you as always. Yep. Thank you for your time. All right. Thanks, Clay. Nicole is obviously a wealth of information. Really appreciate her uh, joining me today. Uh, had an opportunity after uh, the recording with her to uh, talk a little bit about the imposter syndrome. And so that's going to be in the bonus episodes uh, available through Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash working cows. You can find those bonus episodes uh, and you can join up uh, as a patron. A uh, couple of changes in Patreon is you can now uh, give a year at a time. So I know a lot of ranchers have 
kind of uh, spurts of income that come in in one in big lumps uh, throughout the year. So maybe uh, once once a year is better for you. Uh, you can join for a year at a time at patreon.com slash working cows. Uh, really excited to talk to Steve Campbell next week on the working cows podcast. We're going to talk about what is the form of a good cow. So uh, really looking forward to that. I hope you will join us uh, for episode 160 of the working cows podcast coming your way real soon. We invite you to visit workingcows.net to subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher. You'll also find detailed show notes pages, resources from our guests, and the industry leaders who have influenced them. For more ideas on putting your cows to work for you in a more profitable way, tune in next week.